0: year um but uh we're, we're going through it at a speed of being able to understand it and sometimes that's a lot slower than what we'd all like to be I know it is for me um, really what so th- this um, this particular series is um, is probably the most famous sermon, the most famous teaching anyone has ever given in the history of the world. Um, So small task, right, for us to kind of grasp around. Here's the thing, you could, we could learn, spend like months in learning about it, and and then we could start over, spend months learning about it, and there would be new things to learn every single time. So it's not going to be an exhaustive understanding of it all, but I guarantee there will be um, more for us to learn than we can actually get to. And really what the Sermon on the Mount is about is this idea of the good life. Like, what is the good life all about? From the beginning of time, that's what we humans have been asking. It goes back to like, Plato and Aristotle. Like, What is the good life? What is, what, what's a meaningful life? What does it look like? And of course, those questions continue to our day, not only in the highbrow institutions of like, philosophy departments of unis, but also in every arena of life. This uh, search after the good life is why influencer can be an actual job. Because people, why do you watch an influencer? Well, you want to see what the good life is about. And they're telling you what the good life is about, or at least their version of it. And it works as a job for them because there's enough people who are interested in that question. So this week and next week, we're going to listen to history's most famous influencer, grown, um, Jesus, as he tells us what the good life is all about. But first... Since we are going to wade into the most famous teaching that this world has ever seen, we're going to briefly have a think about what we're going to hear. So we're going to take a step back and kind of look at it from the outside. Uh, if we, And actually, if you have a Bible, if you look uh, in verse 17 of chapter 4, it's like a few verses back, there's this kind of summation sentence of what Jesus' uh, of Jesus's ministry. He says, from that time on, it says after he gets baptized, after he's tested in the wilderness, from that time on, Jesus began to pre- preach... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Actually, ah, there it is. You don't even have to turn there. Um, Jesus, what basically what Jesus is doing is asking people to change their way of life because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this set of teaching that we have from chapters five through seven describes what living in the kingdom of heaven is like. It's kind of like the summation of it. And because of that background of what Jesus is doing, it's primarily directed to people who are following Jesus. Now, Of course, we know that people are in different places and how they're following him from merely curious to kind of completely devoted. And regardless of where you are, everyone has room to grow. Um, But what we actually find out, even though it's directed to Christians initially, um, especially in the very beginning, towards the end, crowds end up following Jesus and end up listening to him. So it's something that's directed to his disciples, the people who are following him, but also like broadly for everyone to be able to listen (laughs) into. John Stott, who was a famous preacher at All Souls Anglican in London, called... The Sermon on the Mount is a radical Christian counterculture. That's kind of what it is. It's, very, it's not really in line of how we normally live. It's rebellious. It's rebellious against the, the spiritual status quo. It fights against the powers of darkness within us and the powers of darkness out in the world. So three aspects to think about as we approach these chapters. The first is the teaching itself. What Jesus gives is not kind of like a, a rule book. It's not a how-to, like a tick this list off and then therefore you're good. It's, a, it's more like a guide to life, like a pocket guide to the kingdom of heaven, that's what Jesus has, and it's, it's, it's short. And, but the only way this guide can be followed is if one is following Jesus already, because someone who's already committed to Jesus. It's actually impossible otherwise to follow this, because as we're going to see later on, the standard for Jesus, the standard is be perfect as God is perfect. Uh, what, like, what? That sounds impossible. Yeah, it is. Um, Sam's going to be preaching that message, so we'll leave it up to Sam. So. <laughs> but here's a question. Who can say something 2,000 years ago and it be just as intriguing and revolutionary and kind of like mind-blowing as it is today? Like, that's, it's kind of crazy to think about. Well, that gets to another aspect, and that is the teacher. This is more than just the pocket guide to the kingdom of life. This is also like a messianic manifesto. This is Jesus telling his own teaching. This is more than good thoughts on ethics more of on maybe here's something interesting to think about, Uh, Jesus sets out what it means to be part of his kingdom. And it's still revolutionary. And in doing so, Jesus is claiming an authority that is beyond us, beyond any kind of influencer or leader or whatever. His words carry a weight beyond something more than mere human, because his words are the words of God. The crowds were astonished then, and as we are even today, not just by the teaching itself, but because of who's delivering it, because of the teacher. I mean, if you have some time uh, between now and next week, and really you only need a few more minutes, if you just read through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the chapters five through seven, in fact, you could do it every day. It wouldn't take you maybe more than five, ten minutes. I guarantee you will find new information every single time. It's amazing. So we have the teaching, uh, the teacher, and then we also have the author, who is the Apostle Matthew. Matthew is the one who wrote the book, the Gospel according to Matthew. Um, let's look at how he sets the scene here. So Jesus is out there, he's being Jesus, he's healing people, uh, he's, he's teaching, he's caring for people, he's eating with people. Jesus is always skeptical about crowds because he's skeptical about how fickle they are, and he retreats to get away. So what he does is he goes to a mountainside, he sat down and his disciples are with him. Eventually the crowds are with him, but right here in the beginning of chapter 5, he sits down and his disciples are with him. Now Matthew presents a typical model of authoritative teaching. Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, and this is how rabbis taught. A rabbi would sit, the disciples would sit around them. It would be like putting out like a lectern, or, or in our case, like a music stand. If I was to stand in front of you and there's a music stand all of a sudden and I have like papers on it, you're like, oh, he's going to teach me. Same kind of thing we have going on here in chapter 5. Now, these uh, chapters also are likely a collection of what he taught. It's kind of like Jesus' stump speech, probably. He probably taught these things often. Um, and so, it, uh, so you get other versions of these kind of in other books of the Bible as well. But here, um, let's zoom in for a moment. If you look at verse 2, uh, this seems like a throwaway verse, but I promise it'll matter. Uh, he says, um, and he began to teach them. That's how the NIV translates it. Now, um, more like older or more kind of difficult to read translations will say, and Jesus sat down, opened up his mouth, and taught them. Now, if you're like just telling somebody, you don't have to say, Greg opened up his mouth and taught them. Like, no, you just say you taught them. Or he opened up his mouth, maybe that means something negative, like negative, and maybe it should. But the reason why I bring this up, the idea of, of someone opening their mouth and speech going forward was a very common way in the Old Testament to talk about something coming from God, whether it was a prophet or whether it was God himself. There's an opening of the mouth and something happened. This so is something more than a good idea that's coming. Something weighty is coming. Matthew's telling us what's going on here, this whole setup, What it is, is a reflection of Moses on Mount Sinai. Actually, probably really Moses is a reflection of this, um, but we won't get into that. What what happens at Mount Sinai? God gives Moses the law on top of a mountain, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, all that stuff. Up on the mountaintop, the way of God is being revealed to man. And here we have a new Moses, a newer and better Moses. We've already talked about, if you can remember and jar your memory, how Matthew sets up Jesus in multiple ways to kind of show himself to be a new and better Israel, new and better Moses. In the previous verses, uh, this is still going on here. Here we have the new Moses Jesus delivering what is now the more fully revealed law. Unlike Moses, who was kind of a mediator between people, Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the message and he's the messenger. He's the one giving the message. He says I say to you. He doesn't say God says this to you. He says, I say to you. So this is one of the main reasons why the crowd is in awe. Because Jesus speaks with the authority of God himself. And notice how early on this is in Jesus' ministry. It's not like the idea of being God is kind of slowly unraveling in his head. He knows who he is, and he's acting very clearly as who he is. So, as people uh, who were maybe reading these words that Matthew wrote then, for us now, let's not miss what God has to say to us. And as you might learn some things um, through the Bible here, write them down because we're going to have a time, April, May, I can't remember exactly when, I think it's April, where um, we'll have a time for people to reflect a bit and just share some of the things that you've learned. I promise you, no one will make you get up and like preach a sermon, but just, just hear how the things that you've learned and what God's teaching you in here. Um, so let's go back to this idea of the good life, the general idea of the Sermon on the Mount. It's something that we all yearn for, but we all have different views of it. Every single one would have a different view of what the good life is for themselves. And though that is maybe a reflection of our uniqueness, I think that's also a reflection on we are kind of clueless as to what it is. If we can't really definitively say what the good life is, probably we don't really know what it's about. And what a tragedy to come to the end of your life, or even the middle of your life, and realize, ah, I think I kind of missed something. I think I kind of missed it. A common view of the good life is the comfortable middle-class life, house, a car, 2.2 kids, you know, whatever it is, money for holidays. And that can afford a level of happiness, but for who we are as spiritual beings, that's not enough. That's certainly not enough. Could we be so shallow in our souls that having a few things and knowing a few people and going to a few places is enough to satisfy us? I don't think so. Now that's just one option, and there are lots of many other options. The good life is about personal freedom, about getting to live exactly how I want to. The good life is about family, internal and external family. The good life is something you have to kind of fight and scrape for to get by yourself. I bet all there's parts of us that like all different aspects of that. The comfort, the freedom, the relationships, even the work that we have. Maybe throw some Jesus in there if you can find the time. But none of those ideas are really good enough, and will always leave us wanting more. And I also bet there are as many versions as a good life as there are people in this room. So here is what's so exciting about this teaching. Here, Jesus not only tells us what the good life is about, which turns out to be kind of the opposite of everything we think, but he also leads us there. He doesn't say there it is. All right, go ahead, get at it, like sort yourselves out. He tells us where it is and walks with us as we sort it, as we discover it for ourselves, working working its way out. Jesus teaches and leads us to the upside-down kingdom of God, and because he does that, it allows us to align our lives, not in what we think is best first, but with what is actually best first, what God says is best. So we're just going to take the first half of those verses that, that Rachel read for us um, and look at, uh, kind of zoom in a little bit, and look at some what those things mean. Each of these individual lines is about um, being blessed. Uh, blessed is like another way of saying like happy, but without but like a deeper than just emotional happiness, like a, um, a satisfying happiness. of like, oh, yeah, that's nice. That's what blessed is like. Now, they don't write that in the dictionary. They don't say in quotes, oh, that was nice. But I promise you that's what it means. So um, the first thing we have is this very striking contra- contrast. Blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are blessed. The poor in spirit are happy. Being poor in spirit means being humble. Being dependent, poor in, in like in a, a positive sense, not in a, like a weakness of character or a weakness of faith, but there's a poverty in spirit that comes from maturity, from knowing who we really are and kind of our limits as humans. When we see God properly as He is, and when we see us properly as we are, that kind of gets to a sense of being poor in spirit. This is the opposite of arrogance and independence. When we don't care about others, when we don't care about God, if we aren't poor in spirit, we will put ourselves first. We'll ask what we can get out of things first. We'll rely on ourselves. The poor in spirit, those who get it, they really need to pray. They really need to pray. They know it. They get their need. Ironically, in our culture, it's often the highly independent person that seems to have it all together. But not so. Here, Jesus tells us that to rely on him, to rely on his church, is a requirement for the good life. You know, we live in like a, a DIY kind of culture. Um, if we don't know how to do something, we look it up on YouTube and learn how to do it. And that's fantastic for housing projects. Uh, I'm sure Will has done that loads of times with your guys' house. <laughs> yeah, Just look it up on YouTube, and you can like figure out how to like, I don't know, lay tile or whatever. But that, aspect, that way of doing life has the opposite effect on our spiritual lives. It's not, it's not a positive thing for our spiritual lives. Because DIY spirituality is when you pick and choose all the options that are out there. I have a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Or even like look at the Bible. I li- here's the whole entire Bible. I like this, this, and this. Those other parts, not so much. I just kind of won't really deal with them. Who's doing the picking and choosing? We are. So who is deciding what's good and what's not? We are. That's not poverty of spirit. That's arrogance. That's independence. It's the opposite of depending on God. See, the church is not a collection of individuals doing their own thing. It's a family of people who rely on each other, And rely on God. And when I say rely on God, I mean rely on God together. Not individually, but to do that together. And sometimes that will be at odds with what you have picked out. Or what you would have chosen for your own life. And that can probably be a good thing. The poor in spirit are those who gladly accept God's rule. And are the ones who enjoy the good life. Now you don't have to like it. You don't have to be happy about it. There's loads of things in here I don't like. Loads of things in here. I read it and I'm not very happy about it. But it doesn't, if it is the good thing, if it is the good life, no amount of me liking it or not liking it is going to change that. And actually, even though I may not like it, as I'm following something that I initially may not like, God molding me to be able to, to do that it will give me this poverty of spirit. And, and there is a, a blessing that comes from that. It does mean that the following Jesus means you will have to give up some of the absolute freedom that we all love. But what you get in return, though, is meaning. You pay a little bit of freedom and get a whole lot of meaning. Um, A little bit ago, uh, people in Redeemer took the uh, spiritual life survey. This is kind of like a yearly thing we do to see kind of like how are we doing with like growing with the Lord and stuff. Um, Just one quick stat here. 59% of people in Redeemer said they have regular times with God and prayer and reading the Bible. Uh, Nearly those same people, in fact, it was 100% of those same people Uh, also reported strongly that they really enjoy their relationship with Jesus. That's not rocket science, right? There's a strong correlation between reading and praying and actually enjoying God. And then, actually, if you enjoy God, you kind of want to read and you want to hear more from him and talk to him more often. So it's like it's a good positive loop that can happen. The more you read and pray, and this is what needy people do, right? We need to hear God's words and we need to tell him all of our needs and all of our stuff. The more we do that, the more we enjoy our relationship with him. And the more we enjoy our relationship with him, the more we'll read and pray. So the first twist here, the good life comes to those who are poor in spirit. Here's the second twist. Happy are those who mourn because they will be comforted. The good life doesn't feel like living your best life all the time. The good life does not feel like living your best life all the time. I have to repeat that to myself, I think. Because if I'm not feeling like I'm living the best life, I'm like, oh, something's wrong, something's off. The good life is rooted in the real life. And those who are emotionally and spiritually mature enough to live out their mourning before Jesus, they get something important. They get comforted. Now, the mourning here, there's all sorts of different ways of all sorts of different grieving and mourning we can go. This particular um, thing that Jesus is talking about here is this idea of being oppressed. Like, it's not a personal grief, but an overall general oppression. The oppression of darkness, disorder, and chaos that our sin and other sin bring against us. It gives us shame, it gives us guilt, it gives us fear. Those things are oppressive. That darkness disorder and chaos comes from outside us as well. We live in these broken systems with people in power and don't use it well, with those who have money and don't use it well, with those who have power to do something about justice and don't do anything really about it. Those who mourn have a home to take this to. We have a place to go with that. Now, it's not a stretch for us to believe that everyone will mourn. We all will. Jesus' embrace is one, though, where we get comfort. If we aren't in Jesus' embrace, we shouldn't expect to get his comfort. Remember, the context here are his disciples at first, initially here, those who um, who are near him, those who are following him. But it's also, it's also an open embrace, an embrace so that others can listen in. And what I find actually very comforting is that line that first line, if you, especially if you are reading it in, in a Bible that has it kind of organized um, in the way that Jesus is speaking, there's a comma. It's not a full stop. Blessed are those who mourn, comma. It's not blessed are those who mourn, full stop, that's the end. You're like, oh, great, this is really comforting words. No, blessed are those who mourn, there's something else. They will be comforted. If you follow Jesus and are mourning. Comfort is coming. You may not feel it yet. And in fact, you may not get it completely in the way that you need on this side of the new heavens and earth. But comfort comes to those in the Lord who mourn. And happiness comes in being comforted. To go through pain and not be comforted, that's the opposite. Now we all will go through pain. Who's going to get the comfort? The comfort we will get while in the embrace of Jesus is the restoration of all that oppresses us. This may not come in our earthly timeline, but it will come. Tolkien had, had this great line. Uh, so that everything sad is becoming untrue. And that's true for those of us who are with Jesus. So the position of a disciple is actually like generally, we're disadvantaged in some areas of life. What we get is joy. What we get is happiness. A joy that's not found anywhere else. It's a personal joy that runs deeper than our sadness. And one day we will get to experience it fully. So we have those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourn, those who mourn, the next we have the meek. <clears throat> being meek is not arrogant, it's not oppressive. If our mourning comes from oppression, we don't try and match that and, and try and oppress those who are oppressing us. It's like being poor uh, in spirit. Being meek is all about the relationships that we have with each other. And it's especially with the relationship that we have with God. We're told that the meek are going to inherit the earth. There's a blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's a really interesting reversal, Right? Because it seems like the strong, the powerful, those with business acumen and a cutthroat attitude, those are people who are inheriting the earth, right? But it's really, it's not so. It's the meek who get the real inheritance. So you can be great at business, you can have power and all that stuff and actually still be meek. Now, what does it mean to inherit the earth? We've, if you've been around the church, maybe you've heard these lines before. Like, blessed are they meek, for they will inherit the earth. Like, oh, isn't that so great? But then we go away, we don't really think about, well, what does that mean, Like, in, inherit the earth? Are we actually like, getting like, the war? Like, what, what does that actually mean? Now, in the New Testament, the, the idea of land is uh, something beyond geographical boundaries. <clears throat> the land that Jesus is talking about here and in the future and all the New Testament writers ultimately is the new heavens and earth. The new heavens and earth is this world, but renewed, remade. The hope for the Christian isn't this world, because that's only half. The hope for the Christian isn't just like a disembodied heaven either, because that's only half of it. The hope for the Christian is the new heavens and earth completely remade, fully embodied. What we get is a home in the new heavens and earth. That is what we get as in an our inheritance. And there will be a time where what goes on here will match with what goes on in the heavens, and it will be one place. That does not That's not true now. Those who before Jesus are quiet, are submissive, those who are gentle with others proceeding in this way leads us to the good life, and now, and in the future. So we've talked about the poor in spirit those who mourn, talked about the weak. Before we get to this last one, uh, this should really actually, if you just think of those three things, that should be an encouraging list of people who live in the real world. Like you don't have to be awesome. Jesus never said, blessed are the awesome, because they're going to be awesome. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who have all the things. Blessed are those who have passion. No, actually he's talking about the opposite. Blessed are those who, who are weak. These are people who live in the real world. This is not a happy, clappy, everyone's happy all the time kind of Christianity. There's... um. This horrible bumper sticker that you often see in America. I love and hate bumper sticker theology. Um, but uh, too blessed to be stressed. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Hopefully, for your own eyes in the real world, you've never seen it and I've ruined it by putting it up there. Um, but there's this idea of because I'm blessed by God, you know, uh, I'm not really stressed. But that's not really what Jesus is talking about. No, what Jesus is saying is we are stressed, but it's in how we go about that being stressed that gives us that blessing, that allows us to be blessed. Now that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but that's actually what Jesus is talking about. And the list of those who are blessed continues on to this last point. If you've been dissatisfied with life, if you hunger and thirst for something more than what's right in front of you, this is for you, because that, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. Now this filling, um, it's interesting to see where else that word is used. It's um, often used in the context of like fattening an animal up, like stuffing it, filling that thing so that it's like, you know, a juicy, tasty dinner later on. Now I don't think we're gonna be made for dinner later on. But I think it's that idea of being stuffed, being filled with, with good things. Righteousness is putting right everything that's wrong. A hunger and a thirst for God to put things right. That's what this is. That's the ache of hope. The hope of being delivered one day. This is the hope of salvation, really. This is of God's victory of good and light against all that is evil and dark, now and in eternity. To hunger and thirst for this is more than a thought, it's more than a feeling, more than a good intention. It's living the way that God requires in the way of Jesus. Those who hunger for righteousness but don't practice it, well, we're called hypocrites, right? And everyone has that as part of their hearts. But to truly hunger and thirst means to live it and live in this radical way, walking in the way of Jesus. As much as we might lower our eyes and focus on winning in this world, of just carving out a place for ourselves, what Jesus is talking about is being eager after what, eager to live as God requires. And this is how we cultivate that hunger, how to live a dissatisfied life with things that are far too small for us. At one point in his ministry, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. To live as if God's words are our food, that's what frees us from living those like stunted status quo kind of lives. Eating real food stops us from trying to fill ourselves up with something less. I mean, if you don't live with God in this way, you should, not, uh, you, you should expect to fully embrace the status quo. You, fully expect to, you should fully expect to never grow if you don't live with God in this way. You should fully expect to be satisfied with things that are far too small for you. <coughs> Now, to live on every single word that comes from God, it sets us up to be dissatisfied. So it gets more difficult before it gets better. It sets us up to yearn for something more because hope really can ache sometimes but the satisfaction that comes from those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Not being filled with ourselves, but being filled with Him, we get a satisfaction beyond anything else. And that feeling at the end of a good meal where you narrowly avoided eating too much and it still feels pleasant, you know what that is? Kind of like, oh, if I had like one more bite, I probably would feel ill. But right now this feels great. That filling, that's that's what we'll be filled with. We'll be well-filled, stuffed with righteousness, stuffed with blessing, stuffed with happiness. I mean, do you feel like in your life, are you stuffed with righteousness, and someone's like, man, just kind of, how are you feeling, Greg? I'm just stuffed with righteousness. That, well, first of all, it'd be a very weird thing for me to say to you, but is that, like, do we, is that how we view our spiritual lives? Are we drunk on righteousness? <laughs> is your soul in such a place that you're overwhelmed because all of its wrongs have been set to right, which it has, if you're in Jesus, and you're internally aligned with him in such a way that can't be shaken from the outside? Does that describe your life? We try and stuff all sorts of things in here to try and make up for that, to try and feed that hunger, to try and feed that thirst. Nothing else will satisfy. We keep eating, we keep drinking, we keep working, we keep trying. It's no wonder our world is so full of anxious people. It's no wonder our hearts aren't full of righteousness, but they're full of anxiety. Look, if something isn't filling, stop eating that thing, right? Find the thing that's going to be good. Let's stop reaching for that which will never fill us up. Jesus tells all of us who are looking down at our broken cups, and that's really what we are. That's really what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who, are, who have broken cups. He's looking at, as we look down at our own kind of broken cups, he says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. So if you want satisfaction in your life, if you want to live in contentment, direct your hunger and your thirst towards the Lord, and you will be filled in ways that are impossible otherwise. And there's a very simple way to do this, and this is the thing that maybe feels like it's it can't possibly be true. If you take some time every single day to be with Him, to read some of these words, even maybe some of these words we're talking about today, and to tell Him what you think. You spend 15 minutes a day doing that. If you didn't do that before, it will completely change your life. If you spend 15 minutes, you're like, maybe I could do a little bit more. I guarantee you, it will completely change your life. If I was to spend five more minutes a day than I do now, it would be better for me. Now we can eat and drink and be filled because Jesus has given himself to us. He has given his life so that we would have life. When you read these words, and as we continue to read them, we're gonna find that they are impossible to live by. They're absolutely impossible to live by. And yet Jesus did. Was there anyone more poor in spirit than him? Was there anyone more meek than him? He had all the kind of authority to not be that way. Was there anyone more mournful over our directionless, emptyless lives than the Lord? Nobody had a hunger and thirst for things to be as they should be like Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He hungered and he had a thirst even as he was the one to satisfy that hunger and thirst. And on the cross, Jesus emptied himself, took on all of our arrogance, all of our materialism, all those things we try and stuff in there, all of our apathy, all of our darkness, all of our laziness, everything that holds us back from the good life now, everything that will keep us from the good life in the future. And when he died, so did our old selves that hang and cling on to those things. So the status quo that we held on so tightly to, that thing is done because our sin is done. And Jesus, in his new life, now gives us his spirit. We get tastes of this good life. Now taste smells like sounds from another room. And now the hunger we have for God to put everything right, the thirst we have for his righteousness to come through, for this new heavens and earth, in Manchester as in heaven, we yearn for it. We hunger. We have a taste. We kind of want more. This hoping, this yearning, this aching, that is what the good life is. We aren't filled with ourselves now. We're filled with God. Jesus gave his life so we could live this way, experience life this way. And there will always be a lack of meaning in our lives unless God himself is leading it. The parts where we try and wrestle control, where we might kind of maybe get, get, we might actually get in a fleeting moment of freedom, is lost in meaning and ultimate happiness. So let's scrap what won't give us happiness, but will give us worry. Let's scrap what won't give us satisfaction, but will give us anxiety. Let's scrap all those things. But let's bring those things, the worry, the anxiety, the fear, and all of it, all of our sin, to Jesus. All the parts of us that don't measure up, let's bring that to him. And as he embraces, they're going to fall away. Not immediately and not probably 100% either, but they will fall away. Jesus doesn't just teach us about the good life or even live it out, but through his death and his resurrection, he enables us to actually live this way. Not by ourselves and not even just you and Jesus. Don't get the impression you can do this by yourself because you can't. This is what the church is all about. It's a group of broken people, the meek, the poor in spirit, those who are mournful. This is what the, a group of broken people found by Jesus, stumbling towards faith together, enjoying the good life. And as we eat and drink, which we will in a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we get is a symbol of us being filled with God, of being filled with righteousness. Now this doesn't feel like a meal and this will not fill you, but it's it's a symbol of spiritually what Jesus has done. In order to be filled by him,